whether it's in person or whether it's virtually, we are coming together in the sight of God for the benefit of God and the blessings that he has bestowed upon us. I'm so grateful uh, to be here in New Direction. It's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to come and just share God's word with you. Uh, I do want to take a couple minutes, though, before we get started, uh, because of how good God is. And I want to say that I want to recognize my lovely wife, who God has given to me over 32 years ago. And uh, outside of saving my soul, it was the best thing he ever did for me. So I do appreciate her. To our pastor who has graced us with his presence. So glad to see him. Uh, praying that you enjoy your time away, your time of recharging, and that your lovely wife is a part of that and enjoying your time to just enjoy one another. To my brother in the ministry, Minister Heyman, who has continued to blossom and grow and to just be used by God mightily. I just thank him and applaud him for all that he's doing and all that he has done. The passage that was shared, I'd like to read again in your hearing, is from the book of Matthew in chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Starting at verse 13, Matthew chapter 5. It reads... You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be salted? How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that you have ordained before the foundation of the world that we would be gathered here, Lord, to proclaim your word. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this privilege. Lord, we know that your word will accomplish that which you have set it out to do. And so, Lord, we ask that it would be a blessing unto those, it would, it would encourage some, strengthen others, Lord, and guide us all. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Undoubtedly, all of us have cellular phones. And we use them every day for a variety of things. We use them to text folks. We use them to take pictures. We use them for directions. We use them to get on social media. We use them for all kinds of things. Every once in a while, we even use a phone to talk to somebody. But the reality of it is, is that as much as phones have guided our lives, sometimes we encounter some problems with them. And if you ever encounter a problem with your phone, it is a problem because we become so accustomed to them directing our activities in our daily lives. And so when a problem arises, we got to get it fixed. 
And we attempt to go about how we're going to fix it a lot of different ways. But if, if ever you reach the problem where you can't get your phone fixed, sometimes what's required is a hard reset. And if it's a hard reset that's required, I would challenge you to understand that you're going to have some problems with your hard reset. See, simply a hard reset is simply returning your phone and my phone back to the, the way it was intended by the maker. It's, it's, it's re-executing it's re on the plan of how it was supposed to be when you first got it. Now, if you have to have a hard reset, that means undoubtedly you're going to lose some stuff. Some things are going to be gone by the wayside. There's going to be some inconvenience and some trouble with the fact that you have to have a hard reset. And so I would caution you to understand that the last thing you want is a hard reset when it comes to your phone. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that God has put us in a hard reset. We are in a position where we got to get back to what the maker designed when he had us in mind. So how do you know that we're in a hard reset? You know we're in a hard reset because what we got going on is affecting everybody. It's not just your house or my house. It's not just our town or our state. It's not just this country. It's the whole world. And if the whole world is being affected by it, then God has clearly authorized it. It doesn't matter whether you're in the White House or you're in the outhouse. If you are a prince or a pauper, you are just as likely to succumb to what we have going on today. So how do we deal with what is going on? How do we make it so that we understand how we navigate this hard reset that God has allowed us to be in? The most important way is for us to go back to what he has said in his word and as to how we are to be. What is his expectation of us? Because his expectation does not change. As we get into this passage that we're going to talk about this morning, we see coming out of chapter 4, Jesus having been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He's coming into his public ministry, and he has called some of his disciples to follow him. As they follow him, they begin to walk in a newness of life. He Jesus, at the end of chapter 4, teaches and heals a great multitude. And as we jump into chapter 5, he has taken himself and his disciples to a mountain to begin to teach them. After sitting them down in chapter 5, he talks about this radical way of doing business. We call it the Beatitudes. He gives them eight blessings of following him. And it was a radical way of approaching things because this is not what they expected. They had agreed to follow Jesus as their leader, but what their expectations were, were I assure you, with him talking about these bad beatitudes that they were scratching their heads because that's not what they expected. He said things in the beatitudes like, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. 
that's not the way that people would have talked in those days. That's not even the way the law spoken in those days. So Jesus came with this radical approach. But Jesus was laying the foundation for what was to come in terms of his public ministry and how things are going to be transpired. So he jumps into, after speaking to them about the Beatitudes, he says in verse 13 and verse 14, he starts off his statement with two words. And I don't want you to miss those two words. He says, you are. You are. Now, what I want you to understand is when something says you are, you are. Notice he didn't say you can be or you should be. He said, you are. When we look at ourselves and our essence, we, we're, we can be broken down into two areas. Plain and simple, we can be broken down into two areas. Now, if you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, they are more than likely going to tell you, you consist of this and you consist of that and you are this and you are that. But at, at the core of our existence, at the core of our existence, you can only look at it two areas. What we are and what we do. That, that is the essence of our existence. What we are and what we do. What we are is our character. And what we do is our conduct. Now, our character is just who we are. It's how we are wired. It's what we're made of. It's, it's how, how things are in us. And our character at large, is designed to drive our conduct. But sometimes that doesn't work, okay? And that's why sometimes what happens is we do stuff that we know we're not supposed to do, and somebody would say they're acting out of character because that's not who they are. But the character is who you are. Now, I'm not talking about reputation. Reputation is what people say about you. And what people say about you may or may not have anything to do with who you are. But your character always reveals who you are. So Jesus says, you are, you are. Make no mistake about it. He didn't, he didn't say you can be. He didn't say you should strive to be. He said, you are. And that is our character. And we'll talk a little bit more about conduct in a second. But I want you to get this concept of who we exist as, as people, is that we are who we are and what we do. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is a chemical compound today. But salt in biblical days was even more important than just a chemical compound. It's important for us today, but it was even more important back in Bible days because salt was a precious commodity. As a matter of fact, salt was so precious that sometimes soldiers got paid in salt. That's where we get the term from today that somebody is worth their weight in salt because they got paid in salt because salt was a, a valuable commodity. And again, we still use it today, but it's used in a different fashion, but it still has value. So that's why Jesus begins with the, with the statement that you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt has a lot of properties, but three properties that we need to really recognize the value of and why Jesus spoke in these terms about you being the salt of the earth is that salt flavors. Salt flavors. 
My mother, you may still do it today, but my mother, when I was young, would prepare her meal, and inevitably, before she tasted the meal, she would shake some salt on whatever it is she was eating, okay? Because she, and some of us may still do it today, wanted to flavor that food with some salt. So it didn't matter what it was like before. We added the salt already because we wanted to bring out the flavor or whatever it is because that's one of the characteristics of salt is that it offers some flavor. One of the second characteristics of salt is that it acts as a preservative. In other words, it extends the life of something. See, in the Bible days, they didn't have refrigeration like we have today. And so they could not put something in a freezer to extend its life like we can when we put it in a refrigerator. So one of the properties and characteristics of salt is that if you shake salt on some meat, it will preserve it. It will extend the life of it. That's why today we have canned goods and frozen foods. And if you look at the ingredients, one of the major ingredients almost in all of that that you'll see is sodium. Sodium is another form of salt. And all salt is is a preservative. It's it's going to extend the life of it. It's going to keep it from decaying. And the third property of salt that's most characteristic of it is it makes one thirsty. It will make one thirsty. All of us know the experience of having pretzels or potato chips that are loaded with salt. And before you know it, you're looking for something to drink because it causes you to have some thirst. Jesus is giving us this picture of saying we are salt because he's saying We are in a decaying world. This is where we live, in a decaying world. And we ought to offer the flavor that he provides to this decaying world. He didn't say you got to try to offer it. He says you are salt. You are salt, so you ought to be bringing the flavor onto this world to bear. And if you're not bringing the flavor on this world to bear, what happens? It's good for nothing. He's saying... The very men, in verse 13, that we ought to be infecting with the flavor of his goodness, they're going to trample on us because we've lost our flavor. I will submit to you, my brothers and sisters, that a lot of the issues that we're going on in our world is because we as Christians aren't offering our flavor that he told us to offer. He said, we are salt. We don't have to try to be salt. We are salt. We ought to be offering flavor to a decaying world. We ought to be offering a preservative to sustain this world. And if we don't do that, then we're good for nothing. To be trampled underfoot by men, the very ones that we should be trying to help. So not only that, he goes on in verse 14, and he says... You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, what is light? Light has one job. One job. The one job that light has is to dispel darkness. That's it. That's it. That's the only job of light is to dispel darkness. So no matter how small the light is, no matter how small the light is, I don't care how dark it is, you're going to see that light, okay? You're going to see that light because the light is dispelling the darkness. That's all it's doing. So important is this concept. Jesus said in John 8 and 12, he says, I am the light. 
He says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Because he's saying we are light because he is light. And so as we radiate the light from him, we are in a dark world. And our darkness ought to be shining. And I know many of us know the old time song where we say, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's a great song. Okay. That's a great song. But the reality of it is, no matter how small the light is, the issue is not how small it is. The issue is where, where is the light? Where is the light? And so that's why he says, the light, a city is not, that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The idea is we ought to be broadcasting him by letting our light shine for him. Okay? Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. The idea is to not hide the light that we are. The light should be shining in this dark world for others to see, and we'll see why in a second. The idea of salt and light has one major fundamental understanding behind it, and that is distinction. Distinction. We got to be distinctive. We... we so much of what we have going on in our culture and our world is because, you know what we've done as the body of Christ is we have assimilated. We, we, have, we have become like the world. And he's saying you are salt and light. You ain't supposed to be like the world. You're supposed to be affecting the world. I would submit to you that a lot of our problems, a lot of our issues that we are experiencing in our culture and in our church is because we would rather be more like the culture than we would be like what Christ told us to be. And if that's the case, what we will find is what we, where we are. That's what we will find. We will find we are where we are because we aren't being what we're supposed to be. So how do we know that? Because he told us you are. You're salt and light. You're salt and light. He didn't, he didn't say try to be salt and light. He didn't say aspire to be salt and light. He says you are salt and light. So what, as a result of salt and light, should we do? He tells us in verse 16. He issues a command. He issues a command. And the command is spoken in three parts, in essence. The first thing he says is, let your light so shine. Let your light so shine. In other words, put God on display. Okay? That, that's what he's saying. He's saying, put God on display. If, if you and I put God on display... He says, something is going to happen, okay? Something is going, he says, let your light so shine, okay? It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Let your light so shine. Let your light so shine. So the first thing we do is we put God on display. Before men, before the very men that we're out working with, talking to, fellowshipping with, that they may see your good works. That they may see your good works. What, why did he say good works? He didn't say good things, okay? So is there a difference between good works and good things? There absolutely is. A good thing a non-Christian can do, okay? That's why somebody can give $100 million and some of us get all hyped up like they really did something great, okay? They, they did something good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. But that's unrelated to a good work. A good work is 
done by the power of God for the glory of God. Okay? That's what a good work is. A good, a good, thing, a good thing has its place, but a good work has everlasting value. Okay? Everlasting value. That's why Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, created under created Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them before the foundation of the world. God has designed us so that we would be about good works. And so he says we ought to be about good works. We ought to let our light shine. We ought to put God on display. We ought to be about good works, not about good things, okay? And then the last thing he says is so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. They will glorify your Father in heaven. So in other words, the way this is supposed to work is we are about our Father's business by letting our light shine, by doing good works, and at the end of the day, they see our Heavenly Father. They say, I don't know what it is about him or her, but I want to I know more about that, that Father that they serve. Yeah. Okay, so they shouldn't even see us. They shouldn't even see us. They should see the God in us yeah. based upon our works. Yeah. Now, what are, what are the good works? The good works are simply doing more for somebody than they could do for themselves with no expectation of anything in return. No expectation that you're going to get anything, that you're going to do anything. It's all about putting God on display. And when we do that, something happens. So how do we make it real? The first thing we do to know to make it real is understand that God is in full control. Okay? If if you serve the guy that I serve, you understand that this COVID-19 didn't catch him by surprise. He didn't fall asleep at the job, okay? He knows all about it because if you understand the concept of the sovereignty of God, you know that what he does and how he does it is at his discretion. So everything that happens, everything that happens, happens because he, he, he caused it or he allowed it. And, and there is no in-between. He caused it or he allowed it. And if he allows it, he can turn it to, to good for his praise and for his glory. Okay, so the same guy that we serve, that we read, that calmed the sea for these same fishermen that were going through a storm is the same guy that can say to COVID-19, sit down somewhere. Okay, enough is enough. Okay, that's the same guy we serve. And we got to know that. We got to know that. But what has happened in our society is that we have marginalized God. Okay, we, we put him on the side in society. So we say stuff like, you know, oh, God bless America. But we don't say America wants to bless God. Okay, so we marginalize him and we say, okay, you can do this. Okay, you can do this. And that's what our society, that's what our culture has done. But unfortunately, that's what our church has done. Okay, we, we've gotten we've gotten so comfortable with coming to a building and raising our hands on a Sunday and then going out and hanging with folks on Monday and, and there's no correlation between the light that we told us to have and to display with those that we're working with until we come back next Sunday, okay? And so God said, I'm going to put a hold on that. You can't even use the building, okay? You can't even use the building that you come to meet me at because you ain't following the commands that I told you to do. 
So as long as we as the church have decided to follow the culture, don't expect God to jump in and make a difference in the church. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen because we marginalize them. He says, as long as you want to have me on the outside, okay, I'm going to let you see what life is like with me on the outside. Many of you know my wife and I raised three boys, and it was, it was fun. They were involved in sports. They did everything they went to. They went to college, and they, okay, let's, they came home. <laughs> but once they got home, uh, you know, they were kind of trying to find their way. They were trying to figure out what they were doing. And, and of course, with my job, I would travel, and so I would not be there all the time. And, and I figured it was nice to have the boys home because they could help their mom out, do stuff around the house, until I would get calls with her upset because of what they were doing or not doing. And so I tried to work with them. I tried to talk to them and, and you know, met various degrees of success, but uh, I got tired. I got tired, okay? And so after talking to my wife about it for a second, I said, you know what? I got a plan. I didn't tell her what the plan was. I didn't tell them what the plan was, but I took a post-it, a sticky post-it, a yellow post-it note, and I wrote a date. And the date was about 18 months into the future. And I took that note and I stuck it on the refrigerator. And I brought my boys in and I said, guess what? I don't know what you're going to do between now and, and this date, but you know what this date represents? They said, no. I said, this is the date you got to be out of our house, okay? Now, I, I don't know what you're going to do between now and then. I'll help you with whatever you got to do. But understand that when this day comes, you need to be on your own, okay? Because I need to help them understand what life was going to be like if you ain't going to live under my rules, okay? God is doing the same thing for us. He's saying, I need you to understand what life is going to be like if you want to keep me on the margin. Okay? If you don't want me in your, if you don't want me all up in your Kool-Aid, then okay. Then you deal with it. And you deal with it the best way you can. Okay? Because I know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing. So how do we, how do we, how do we fix it? How do we go from there to where we need to go? How do, how do we, how do we get the transformation to take place so that it becomes real? It becomes where we got to go. Again, he told us to walk in good works. He told us to walk in good works. But I would submit to you, just like Jesus told them with the Beatitudes, he gave, them a, he gave them a radical approach. It's time for us as the people of God to get radical. We, we got to turn this around by being radical. And what I mean by being radical is many of us know it's kind of easy to help somebody that's down on their, down on their experience in life. It's, it's kind of easy sometimes because sometimes we feel better about just helping them. But my challenge to all of us is for us to help somebody who we know we don't really want to help. They, and as a matter of fact, they may not even deserve it, okay? But that's, that's the challenge. That's what we got to get to as guys. We got to say, forget what we think about them. Forget how we feel about them. How about let's put God on display in our lives for them benefit? Okay, so even if we know they don't deserve it, even if we know we don't want to extend that kind of love and grace to them, that's what we ought to get to because that's what it's all about. It's about the word grace. It's about extending grace. And if we extend grace to them, we're putting God on display because guess what? God could look at us and say, you know what? I didn't need to help that one because they didn't deserve it either. 
But he didn't. He blessed us still. He blessed us despite ourselves. And so for us to get back, for us to get things back from this hard reset, the church has to be the church. We has, as individuals, we have to step up and we have to represent the cause of Christ. Everybody else is raising up and saying this and that, okay? Every, every agenda, every program, it's, it's fashionable right now to, to have a cause, to have a cause, and to protest, to march, and that's all well and good. But the reality of it is, where is Christ in all this? Where are we as Christians in all this? Where are we stepping up, being the people that we're supposed to be? Because we can affect the society, because we're supposed to. We're supposed to. But it starts with grace, being radical in our approach. It starts with grace. I love the story that is told of King David. And, and, and we all know the Bible speaks to David, and it says that he is a man after God's own heart. Okay? And if you look and you look and you look, the Bible never really explains why it says that he was a man after God's own heart. But if you, if you really, really study the life of David, you see some commonalities that David ex- displayed. And one of those things that I have taken heart with and seeing in the life of David is the reality of is David loved to put God on display. He loved to put God on display. You can read the Psalms. You can read other stories of what David did and how he, how he behaved. But at the end of the day, David loved to put God on display. David loved to display grace, okay? And so 2 Samuel chapter 9, you will see the story of David. And David has a reflection after he had come into power and he kind of had cemented his, his kingdom. It occurred to him that he had made a covenant with his buddy, Jonathan, years ago. And David couldn't rest because David said, you know what, I I made a covenant with this guy, Jonathan, who we were really cool. Now, forget the fact that Jonathan's dad, the King Saul, had made David run and run and run. But David said, I'm not not worrying about that. He says, I want to show some kindness to the house of Saul because of the goodness of God. I want to put God on display. So David, in his desire, he says to one of his servants, he says, is there anybody from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? Is there anybody that's still alive from the house of Saul that I can be a blessing to? And the servant said, there's there's this one guy named Mephibosheth, okay? This, This little dude that is crippled, can't really help nobody or help himself. David said, go bring him to me. When Mephibosheth came to him, he said, bless him, king, because he didn't know what was going to happen because culturally, okay, in society, David is the king. Saul was the previous king. Saul's family had a right to the lineage of the, of the kingdom of the, of the, of, as being royalty. So David, if he were operating in his own strength, he had the right to annihilate that whole family. And Mephibosheth surely thought that that was what was going to happen because that's how it was supposed to go. But David wanted to put God on display. David said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in a place where you can eat at my table, and I'm going to restore some of your family's land to your family so that you know that God is still on the throne, that God is still doing what only God can do. 
David took this radical approach, says, you know what? I'm not going to be like the rest. I'm going to be different. And God is saying to you and me today, he's saying you are salt and light. You are created for good works. Put me on display. And if you put me on display, let's see what the world will look like when I get done with it. But if you put me on display, my light will shine through you so that others will come running saying, I want to be a part of that. Let us put God on display. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for your opportunity. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you do, Lord. We thank you that you are continually on the throne and that you can do all things but fail, Lord. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.